The week leading up to his death, Jesus spent that week in the city of Jerusalem with his disciples. And there's this one cringy moment where it's like the disciples went into full touristy mode and they were with Jesus and they kind of pulled him aside. They said, Jesus, look at all these big buildings. Look at how impressive this is. Wow. Whoever built those really made a difference. And Jesus acknowledged, yeah, they're impressive. But then he just floored them with this prophecy. He said, not two of these stones will be left on top of one another. This will all be leveled one day. And they just, they stopped. And they, it really changed the way they viewed the buildings when they recognized they wouldn't be there forever. And so they, they asked Jesus after he said this, like they, they pictured the end of the world. And they said, wait a minute, wait a minute. When will all of this happen? When and how will everything be done at the end? And what's the sign that things are going to be ending soon? And if you want to read it, Matthew chapter 24 gives Jesus' answer to that question. He tells them that things were going to get worse, not better. And he warned them about what was to come before the end. And I think part of us all has that curiosity too. We, we think about the end of the world, what it will be like. What will, what will it look like when Jesus comes back to make everything new again? And, and maybe your fantasies have kind of thought about that day too. But here's the thing. When the disciples realized that the buildings wouldn't last much longer, they saw the buildings much differently. They, they took on less significance. And, and maybe the same has been true of your life, as I know at times it's been true of mine. Your life is short, comparatively speaking. Your life will one day end. And as you think about that, you might wonder, well, what's the point? I mean, if you give your, work your hardest, if you give your most, if you love as much as you can, people will remember you for what? A decade? A generation? Do you even know the name of your great-great-grandparents? When, when we think about the futility of our life, we might wonder, well, what difference does it make? And then on top of that, there's the complexity of your life, like your circumstances. Like, well, I have this weakness, or I can't do that. And what difference could I possibly make? And so what's interesting is when, when Jesus was talking to his disciples about the end, he didn't just tell them how things would end, but he told them something much more important. He basically said, guys, here's how to live while you wait. And if you read through Matthew chapters 24 and 25, you see five different things Jesus points to. He says, this is what it looks like to live while waiting. Five things you should be doing, five things you should be focusing on or aware of. And what we're going to do today is just look at the fifth thing that Jesus pointed to at the end of Matthew chapter 25. It might seem like, it, what difference can I make? But one of the things Jesus told his disciples, and he tells us today, is number one, Jesus taught people to make a difference while they live in waiting. He told them it's so important to make a difference. And as we look at Matthew 25, Jesus himself is going to tell us how and why. So if you've ever wrestled 
with the significance you have in this life or whether or not you can make a difference, lean in to what Jesus has to say. So what we've seen is in this section, Jesus is talking to people about the end, and so he tells them this is what's going to happen. Matthew 25, starting at verse 31. Oh, the other disclaimer today is we're not going to read through the entire section um, from verse 31 all the way through verse 46. I'm going to skip around and hit some of the main sections and bring the main sections all together. I don't know why I'm doing this, but we're going to bring the main sections all together so we can see the main themes pop out. And this week, I encourage you, read through this section on your own several times because it's really cool to see how things just pop out when you read through this section. So, Jesus said this, when the, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. And in their context, a throne was a sign of a judgment. So this is what, one of those things where we see in the Bible, there's this description of a final judgment that is to take place and Jesus, as the king, he will sit on this throne. And then it describes what happens right after this. Then all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another. And Jesus pauses to think, how can I explain this in terms that they'll understand? Jesus says, here's what it'll be like. It'll be like a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And all the people are like, oh, okay, we get that. But at this final judgment, God separ- or Jesus separates all people, sheep and goats, righteous, unrighteous, good, bad, righteous, and evil. There's this separation, one of the two. And I thought just the way that Jesus describes this, sheep and goats, maybe we'll just throw up a couple pictures and see, well, we'll let's play a little game. It's called Spot the Goat. And I, I, I was thinking maybe I could, you know, stretch the meaning of goat and say there's one goat on the stage. We'll see if you can point out the goat. <laughs> You'd probably, yeah, point to one of those. Um, so on the count of three, I'm going to ask you which one, uh, let's, let's just do this one. Is this the sheep or the goat? On the left side, I'm pointing to the left, I'm sorry, the right side of your screen, the, the right side. Uh, so sheep or goat? And just on the count of three, everyone say the answer. Let's, little game. Ready? One, two, three. Goat. Did anyone say sheep? Not to call you out. Okay, good. So all, this is cool. Even in the 21st century, we can spot the difference between a sheep and a goat. How can you tell the difference? One of my favorite nature guys says, you can tell it's a goat because of the way it is. <laughs> it's nature. So it's obvious, right? It's obvious when you look at the difference between a sheep and a goat, you could no problem help a shepherd separate the two and have the two in in different pens. When you and I think of judgment day, at least I think about it as this really complicated thing because when it comes to your faith in God, I can't see that. I can't distinguish between believer and unbeliever. And so I think, man, God is going to have to go into the recesses of every person's heart and just do a thorough evaluation of what's there in uh, animal terms. You bring up each animal and inspect it and look at it and say, hey, could you make some noises for me so I can tell what you are? And it's like he's gathering all this information. But for God, that's not what the final judgment will be like. For him, it's obvious. That's our our second thing to note, is that when it comes to righteousness and wickedness, it's all obvious to God, as much as it's obvious for you to distinguish between a sheep and a goat. 
And in the remainder of the section, Jesus is going to tell us how God determines or how it's so obvious who is who. And here's where we get a little nervous, isn't it? Because which one would you be? The right or the left? The sheep or the goat? And so the king will say to those on his right, come to me, you who are blessed by my father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. And note how in no way is he pointing to the accomplishments of the sheep. They are blessed, favored by God. There is an inheritance which they did not build up. There's a kingdom which they did not build, which had been built since before they were born. The sheep belong there, and that what they're receiving is of no work of their own, which is important for you and me to note. Because throughout this section, we're going to see faith in Jesus, which does no work, is thoroughly mixed in with the works that flow from faith in Jesus. But before we get too far into that, Jesus doesn't just tell the, the sheep what will be happening for them, but he also talks to those on his left. To the sheep, he says, come. But to the goats on his left, he says this. He will say, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And you got to think, wow, what does a person have to do to deserve that? What would I have to do to deserve that? That seems like a really eternal big punishment for something that you just do during your life. So what did they possibly do? And what I wish I could tell you is that Jesus is just all love and he didn't really teach people about a place called hell and he didn't really believe in that. But he's speaking in no uncertain terms that there is a place called hell. And as he explains, this is a place that was designed for spiritual beings to torment them. And the sad reality is that there will be some people who are tormented there too. And so they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. So we just have to recognize this. As the disciples were looking at Jerusalem and seeing the big buildings, it totally changed everything when they realized all that would be gone. Like life wasn't about that. From, from our perspective, what is life about? What won't change? What won't change is this. Number three, everyone will spend eternity in one of two places. Nowhere does Jesus give a third option or a neutral option. It's only one of two places. And we have this life to determine which trajectory we're on. So now the heat's starting to build up, right? For God, it's obvious who's righteous and who's not. Everyone will spend eternity in one of two places. And so there's two questions that we're all wondering. Where am I at? And where are my people at? So let's look, at, let's look specifically at each group and see what Jesus says to each one. And here's something, we're, we're going to find some unexpected things in this. I, I keep wanting to call it a parable. It's not a parable. Jesus is basically giving us a picture of the future. 
So we're going to see some unexpected things come up as Jesus continues this picture of the future. And so we're going to narrow in on each group. So the king will say to those on his right, come to me, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world for, in other words, here's why you're being invited to come and inherit all of this. And you might be wondering, man, what good things did they do to God? What sacrifice did they offer? Like how many churches did they build or how much offering did they give? We're thinking, you know, in terms of outward visible generosity, but here's what Jesus, the king will say to them. I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. And before I get into all these verbs, what they all have in common is they're all, uh, these Greek words are all in the aorist tense. And the only thing you need to know about that is the aorist tense is like a snapshot. It's basically saying, hey, there's this one time when I did this, and this happened. So it's, it's not like an ongoing thing, like I was in a, in a place of hunger. No, is I was hungry that one time, and you fed me. I was thirsty. You gave me something to drink. I was like a stranger. You didn't know me. I was some foreigner. And you didn't keep distance. You invited me in. I needed clothes. Literally, I was naked. And you were not ashamed. You didn't turn the other way, but you clothed me. I was sick. And you did not distance yourself and social distance and keep your distance, but you came to me and you would not leave my side. You looked after me. I was in prison. And you were not ashamed to be associated with me, but you came to visit me. And then, here's the interesting thing. The king is inviting these people to eternal life and he's telling them why. And then they raise their hand to object. Like, I don't know if I would do this if God said, hey, Matt, come on into heaven. I don't think I would raise my hand in objection. You might want to double think that. But they basically raise their hand and they, they ask the question that we're all wondering. When, the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you? Sorry, my voice cracked. When did we see you? I'm sure their voice cracked too because they were so just out of their minds. When did we see you hungry and feed you? or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you, a stranger, and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and, and go to visit you? We never did that. In fact, we're pretty sure you were never in prison because you were the righteous, holy son of God, and you were never arrested until you were crucified. When did we see you? When were you hungry? And then Jesus leans in. He says, here's the deal. The king will reply, because Jesus is talking about the future. The king will, will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. And whenever Jesus uses those words, actually in Greek, it's just one, Adelphoi, which is brothers, but we're inclusive. So the translation uses brothers and sisters. We're, we're all part of the, the same thing. Whenever it uses that, Jesus is referring to his followers, his disciples, people who love him, people who have faith in him. Uh, even one day when, when Jesus' literal mother and brothers were standing outside looking for Jesus, someone came in and was like, hey, your, your family's looking for you. And Jesus addressed his disciples and he said, who is my mother and who are my brothers? They are the ones who do the will of God. You are my mother. You are my brothers. And so Jesus intimately connected his identity with his people. 
And no stronger of a time do we see that when he was on the cross, intermingling his identity with those who trust in him, who have faith in him, to the point where it's like there's no difference between who he is and who you are. The punishment for sin was put on him, and his righteousness was given to you. There's there's no place where Jesus begins and, and we end. It's like he's He's totally inseparably married in in every way. And so Jesus tells the people who are walking into heaven, he's like, when you served one another, when you loved one another, you were serving and loving me. And they're like, oh, we weren't trying to serve you. We weren't trying to love you. It it just came naturally. It It was automatic. Jesus says, yeah, that's the point. That's what my love looks like. It, I don't have to tell you to do things to do them. It's just automatic. But then comes the, the, the other part. The people on his left. And again, we have to ask the question, what did they do that was so bad that now they are condemned to eternal suffering? So look at them. He will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And here's why. Here's what you did. He says this. I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. And here's where they object. They say, wait a minute, Lord. And here's the interesting thing. They call him Lord. They know who he is. They answer, Lord, when did, same question, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison? And when did we not help you? And here's the the thing. Neither side was aware of what they had done because what they had done was just an extension of who they were. It was automatic. Those who were connected to Jesus by faith, who knew what grace looked like, they couldn't help but show it. Not perfectly, but in their life. And those who did not know Jesus as the only son of God or the one who had grace for them, the ones who didn't look to him for forgiveness, they were living by guilt. And so when they saw someone in need, when they saw someone in prison, when they saw someone who was naked or hungry, well, that's what they deserve. But they bring up a good question. If, if I had known it was you, I would have helped. And here's where I challenged myself with something this week. It is so much easier to love Jesus than it is to love the people Jesus loves. So easy to love a God who is perfect and holy. So difficult to love the sinful people whom he loves. But when you understand what grace means for you, sinful person, your automatic yes is to say yes to loving and serving according to your ability. And when you live by guilt, because there's no place for grace with you or you, you don't believe God loves you, when you're living in guilt, That'll be your default to others too. So finally, Jesus replies to them, well, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. 
It's almost unfair, isn't it? Like Jesus never warned them before this point, hey, if you, if you want to get to heaven, be nice to people and serve them. And if you see people who are hungry, feed them. You know, wouldn't some warning have been nice? But here's the thing. God's version of love isn't about giving you a bunch of rules to keep. Even though this is how non-Christians or people who don't know the Bible, this is how they interpret church. Oh, you just go there to keep a bunch of rules and you think you keep rules better than other people. And oh, that's not the kind of life I want. That's never what Jesus did. Jesus did not come to give more rules. In fact, he took away a lot of them. People actually asked him, what are the rules we need to keep? And he kept it really simple. Love God and love people. The commandments help us understand what it looks like to love God and love people, but those are the two basic things. Love God and love people. Because when you understand the way that God loves you, it changes everything. So how does God love you? Well, what I know is that when Adam and Eve fell into sin, they ruined a lot of things. <laughs> and, and I'll just, maybe I'll give a personal example of this first. So as a dad, there's times when things around the house break, things get spilled on the table, and you know, it's like, okay, this, now I got to deal with this. And the moment I hear, dad, this broke, there's just a part of my heart that just dies. <laughs> and I give this audible gasp, like, ah. Oh. I just fixed that last week. I just did that. Oh, another thing to add to the list. There's this, we use this term often, there's a family obligation, right? You got a family obligation, and maybe you even use this excuse with people. Hey, wish I could go hang out with you. Got a family obligation. They're like, oh, sounds bad. <laughs> when it comes to the way God looks at you, there is no obligation. Maybe there's one obligation, an obligation only to love as you've been loved. That's called fairness, I think. But there is no set of rules. There is no obligation. Because when God saw Adam and Eve's sin, when he saw your sin, when you confess your sin to him every day, Father, I've sinned again, your father doesn't say, ah, oh, again. But every sin you place before him is an opportunity for him to demonstrate who he is a God of grace. He doesn't shrug his head and say, man, you really messed up again, didn't you? He doesn't sigh out of frustration, but he embraces with grace. And so here's what we need to know. God's kind of love is driven by opportunities, not obligations. He was not obligated to give Adam and Eve a promise to undo what they did. He was not obligated to keep the Israelite nation his promised nation. He was not obligated to you to keep on forgiving, to keep on loving. He's not obligated to surround you with people who have shared with you the good news of Jesus. So when it comes to our ministry, we're not a ministry where we're going to make you feel guilty. God won't love you unless you do this. Because we want your love to be a natural extension of who you are. You are loved and forgiven by grace. Jesus saw in you an opportunity and for the joy set before him, he endured the cross because he knew that would change who you are. So here you stand today. And you're never going to be perfect when it comes to making a difference in this world. But when we shift from an attitude of guilt over what we don't do or could do 
Instead, see the world differently. If we could just see the opportunities to love the people around us, that's when everything starts to change. In fact, I've challenged my own verbiage. Um, years ago, I would, whenever there was something that needed to be done at church, you know, I'd try to find someone like, hey, this needs to be done. Do you think you could help? I've changed the way I view, it, I view things because, number one, everything we do at church in one way helps us lead people to Jesus. So that's not just a meaning, no matter what it is, whether you're stacking chairs or cutting the grass, everything in one way helps us lead people to Jesus. And so the way I phrase it is, I have an opportunity and I'm wondering if you'd like to be a part of it. And I had to really practice this back in 2017 when we were moving out of our previous site and we were going to be worshiping out of Lakeville North High School for who knows how long while this site was being built. And we had to do this thing called set up and take down every week just to have church. And so we recognized our staff, we, we need to find some leaders who can figure out this setup process and the takedown process and put everything back together. And so I identified a guy named Josh Jagger and his wife, Shelly, Michelle, I call her Shelly. Most people call her Shelly, but she also goes by Michelle. Anyway, <laughs> I was going to ask Josh to lead the takedown team. And I'm, as I'm thinking about this, I'm like, Josh is way overqualified for this. I feel stupid asking him. He's probably going to say no. And there's this, this inter internal dialogue. But I finally worked up my courage. I'm like, hey, Josh, um, as you know, we're going to be changing some things. And we've got an opportunity for you be part of a team where you could really make a difference. And Josh said yes. And not only did he make an impact and make a difference, but it made a big difference in him. And so we asked Josh and, and Michelle to sit down and share their story of what it looked like to be volunteers, to, to be part of a team at North Cross. And it's going to be a little light and jovial, but we wanted to share their story with you and I'll let you hear from them what it was like. Here it is. I'm Josh Jager. And I'm Michelle Jager. I spent some time as the secretary for the council, so just wrapped up six years of that. Uh, also, when we were at the high school, I helped to lead the takedown team. So we reassembled the high school into high school after using it as a church and I currently volunteer with Gus Services. I started with kids. Let's just go with that. <laughs> I've always been with kids, either VBS or doing Sunday school, so. From an impact perspective, um, I think the connection with people is maybe the most important thing. We've created lifelong friendships with uh, some of the other volunteers, uh, getting to know uh, people that are going to church just in general, holding the door open for them, making sure there's a, you know, a smile on everybody, um, make it a really welcoming place. So that, I think the connection is probably the, the biggest piece for us. So when we first started with the church, there was someone that actually opened the door for us and knew our kids' names, knew who we were. And the second we, week. And if we were gone, we were gone for something, I can't remember what it was, that we were gone for. And they were like, you were gone. Where were you? How are you? Is everything okay? So that In was a caring funny. way. Yes, yes, not, not a creepy way, sorry. But yeah, just very caring and understanding that, you know, they missed us, so that was cool. I think volunteering has been the best way to get connected because you're working alongside other people and 
you get to know them and you're spending time together, you're doing the same thing, you're on the same mission. Um, and it's different than just you know sitting in church, which is great, uh, but to, to have that time together is, is really cool. So um, for me volunteering, I didn't have to have any experience when I first started. So um, if there's something that I didn't know, it was very comfortable to ask, and how do I do this? Um, especially like with the takedown stuff that we were doing, like I was like, I don't know what to do. Like, okay, I can flip chairs and stuff. All right, I got that down. Flipping tables. <laughs> what next? <laughs> so, um, and if it's not the right fit for you, there's other things that you can volunteer to do too. Like Josh here. <laughs> he does other things besides doing all the kids stuff. Yep. Uh, I, I tried <laughs> North Cross Kids. <laughs> for a minute and it is not my gift so I exited stage <laughs> <laughs> I knew he was gonna say that <laughs> yeah. uh, you know guest services has been an awesome experience uh, you know it's, it's getting out in front of people talking to people trying to remember their names and yeah it's it's just what I do otherwise it's a natural extension of my personality, I guess. I think that it's really helpful to have, like I work with uh, one and two year olds, and I think it's very helpful to have the ones that are crawling to actually have them in a setting that's safe so the parents can actually hear the message and get more from it. I just add that, you know, the skill maybe that has matured the most for me is just the opportunity to. Um, have a leadership role, uh, whether that was with the takedown team or uh, doing things with council or even guest services and, and just helping make sure that you know we're ultimately leading people to Jesus and not getting in the way of that. That's been that's been really cool. So that's I'd, I'd say just get in there. Yeah. Just do it, like Pastor Ben's shoes, Nikes. Just do it. Is he like Mr. Rogers and comes in and puts on church shoes? Because they are super white. Very, like, very white. Fresh kicks. Maybe because we sit up front that we see that all the time, but I mean, it's it's like bling and white. Maybe it's the lights? I don't know. It's I need very... to know. I don't know, man. It's it's lifelong friends. I I think we've had you know volunteer people on the same team, and you know. Uh, we're godparents to Sam and Olivia's daughter, which is amazing. So that's a cool opportunity. I don't I think mean. we would have met them if we weren't here. Right. Same thing with Matt, Matt and Jania. Would so not get have. in there. Yeah. Thank you, Sam and Olivia. Baby <laughs> Elena. Yeah. Just the connections that you can make is just unbelievable. So kind of the final word is simply this, that when Jesus was acknowledging with his disciples that, yeah, life is, is going to be short, he still encouraged them, make a difference. Because ultimately everyone will spend eternity in one of two places. It's obvious to God who is who, and we have this time to lead people to Jesus who alone is our righteousness. And it's a joy and honor to be able to serve one another as we head 
toward that eternal home of heaven. So you don't need to be on a team at church to make a difference. I just want to throw that out there. You don't have to be on a team at church, but when you are on a team, you will make new and deeper connections with others. You will be intentional and accountable with how you serve. And when we come together as a church, we get to celebrate how we can make a bigger difference together. So I'm going to encourage you this week, thoughtfully consider how you can be intentional in the way you live out the extension of who you are, showing love, showing grace to the people around you. Let's close with prayer. Dear Father in heaven, thank you for your matchless love for us that saw us while we were sinners and far from you, and you came and changed our trajectory by sending your son Jesus into this world. You gave us a rock-solid faith in him that holds on to him with all of our might and all of our hope. It is his forgiveness that washes away our sin, and it's his righteousness that declares us holy in your sight. We are your people by grace. Help us to live as your people. Thank you for the way we can make a difference in our lives and for the way we as a church make a difference in people when we lead them to Jesus who changes everything. Give us wisdom and discernment this week to recognize our talents and abilities and how we can lay them before you to serve and love in a way that honors you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.